Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation, but not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.app slash breadbox. One, two, three, listen. Welcome to Shoot the Shiitake Podcast with me, Father Leo Padalinga, a Catholic priest on a mission to bring people of all different backgrounds together, to learn, to love, and accept one another. Even if we disagree with each other, we got to be willing to listen to each other as God does with us and as God intends for us to do. And this podcast isn't about the deep technical things of faith or spirituality, but it's more importantly about how to make these things realistic and practical part of our life simply by listening to each other. And this week we have the special privilege of listening to Chef Chris Spear, who basically has created an organization called uh, Chefs Without Restaurants. Uh, He is a culinarian who kind of expresses all about what it's like to be a chef in this modern world. And I think you're going to love it. And if you want to support our podcast, just go to platinggrace.com and click on the Academy where you can become a member and support us by joining one of the tiered memberships. And as an Academy member, you'll become part of a unique online community, gain access to premium content and other special perks. But for now, please enjoy my guest for a deep dish discussion with Chef Chris Spear as we shoot the shiitake. Chef Chris Spear, not Chris Spears as in like Britney Spears. Thank you for joining me. Now, Spear, that's a unique thing. Why don't you have an S at your last name? I don't know. I don't know anyone named Spear or Spears, really. So I'm not even sure. I mean, we're, we're from England. Um, you know, I think it goes back to the days of like, your last name was based on your trade. So someone probably in my family lineage somewhere was making like Spears. Um, or like or, or a spear. using them. <laughs> yeah. Or you speared somebody. So is this the kind of culinary work that you, you, you do a lot of skewers? Is that what you use? I do a lot of skewers. Yes. Maybe that should be my exclusive specialty. That should be. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for being a part of this conversation. And I want to jump in with just kind of the work background that you had. You've been, a, you've been a chef for how long? I mean, I started in the culinary industry in 1992 when I was 16 years old, 
working at the very fancy Burger King. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been in the food industry for a good number of years now. It's exclusively what I've done in my whole working career. And let me ask you, when you started off that young and working schlepping, literally greasy burgers, plus having to clean toilets, because when you're an employee of that kind of industry, you're doing everything. Trust me, I've done it too. Why were you not discouraged to find another real job? I just love food. I've always loved food. I think my mom said at three years old, uh, she sensed that I wanted to be in it. I said I wanted to be a baker. Maybe that was the year for Christmas. I asked for the strawberry shortcake uh, figure, but it was the baker. He's like this mad, crazy, evil baker with kind of like a curly mustache. Um, and just, you know, as a little fat kid who loved food and was always around it. And um, I think I'm an artistic person. So that was a great outlet for me. I don't have great uh, drawing skills or things like that, but I'm definitely into photography and painting and stuff. And that was just kind of one of my outlets was, was cooking. Do you think that in a way, this is a vocation, like you working in food, it's kind of like an inner calling? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love that. Explain that for me because a lot of people don't believe it when I say it. Yeah. Well, and also the idea of entertaining and nourishing people. I mean, people eat for a number of reasons. And there are some people who are just eating for sustenance who's, you know, like you look at people who are on these diets where every day they eat like a boneless, skinless chicken breast and steamed broccoli and whatever. And they're doing it to like cut calories and things of that nature. But I love the idea of gatherings. You know, my family were entertainers. I just remember like we would host the Sunday brunches on the block and we'd, you know, fire up the grill and my mom would make casseroles and people would bring things and we'd host them at our house. And I just grew up in that environment. I mean, so many of our gatherings, I think all of them involved food, whether we were hosting them or going to someone's house and just that idea of, you know, having a big group of people together and having delicious food. So I love the idea of both. Wait um, a minute. New England is where you're from. Yeah. One can only have so much chowder, all right? I mean, like, what do you mean by <laughs> delicious foods? Because casseroles can be kind of very homey. Was your mom one of those people who understood flavors? We had a lot of food that had good flavor, but she was a very by-the-book uh, cook. You know, even as I got into culinary school, she was wary of when I would make things that kind of strayed from the recipe. You know, I use a recipe as a template and if it calls for a green bell pepper and I don't have it, but I have a red, I'm going to use it. And she always kind of like, uh, I don't know. Um, and doesn't like to go off script. So, you know, the food we had was, was pretty flavorful, but you know, growing up in the eighties, um, the quote unquote ethnic food wasn't very diverse in our house. Like I remember the first time we had tacos or something, I had a foster sister actually that came to live with us, uh, when I was, nine years old and she introduced us to tacos which oh. was the you know the mid 80s and it was just kind of like this weird thing like we had never had a taco and it was like 1986 or something well, that's interesting i'd love to hear a little bit about your family dynamic you said that you just had uh you know you had family gatherings but you also had a a foster sister that's kind of unique yeah i was an only child i think my parents wanted to have another child i mean i know that my mom lost a child uh when i was two years old and I think that was just something that they were always interested in. And my family's always been, um, you know, wanting to help out. And I think by the time I was like nine years old, they thought, okay, we've kind of gotten over the hump of having a younger child. And not that I was self-sufficient, but they thought that, you know, they could then do more. And they just um, took in a woman, a girl. She was uh, 16 at the time at a foster home in our hometown of Marlboro. And she lived with us from... Um, what you was know, her age, background? What's that? 
What's her ethnic background that she introduced tacos? Yeah, uh, white, <laughs> white from like, <laughs> but she but she grew up uh, outside of Boston, like closer to Boston than I did. So maybe she grew up in a more ethnically diverse neighborhood or something like that. I mean, we were about 40 miles west of Boston. We were very white, and so not really you, racially diverse in my hometown. So And so when you decided to move from Burger King to Johnson and Wales, there's, there was a gap there. Kind of give me a little summary, because I, I know a lot of people who are going to listen to this and say, you know, my kid loves cooking as well, but he doesn't know how to go through the steps or she doesn't know what to do with a career in cooking because it has changed. We're going to get into that. Yeah. I mean, I think fast food is always great because you learn a work ethic, you learn speed. Well, you uh, should. Kind of, you should. You should. You should. <laughs> right. Uh, but I didn't have any real culinary training and I wish I did, but I, I've told a lot of people, my hometown was not open to having like kids work in their restaurants. I remember, you know, at the time applying at these places and the generalizations I would even hear in interviews is like, oh, well, you're a kid. And when the weekend comes and you want to go and party with your friends, you're going to call out like people were judging me who didn't even know me. And I just remember kind of being broken a little bit by that. Like I wanted to go work at the best restaurants in town and show them what I had. And I was being judged even in these interviews that, oh, I was a kid and um, they weren't going to take a risk on me. So fast food was it. So I worked there from when I was 16 to 18. So I actually didn't work in a restaurant other than Burger King until I got into culinary school. So I had no kind of real world uh, cooking experience before I went to school. Wow. And the schooling, it's expensive. My goodness gracious. Is it worth it? And are there ways for people who might not be able to afford it to still become a professional chef, a good cook? Yeah, somewhat controversial topic, but something we've talked on our podcast, and I would say it's not worth it in this day and age. You know, again, I went to culinary school in 1994. I mean, I, that doesn't sound that long ago, but it was like pre-internet. Like when I was a freshman in college, I didn't have the internet, like at all. Like you couldn't, there weren't resources online. You couldn't. Dude, I lived with- in a country that still had <laughs> pay phones, okay? And they had a specific coin that you could use only for that. You couldn't even use any real coin. You had to use that coin. So I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I'm just thinking you are still a young pup to me. <laughs> but, even, but even at the time, you know, um, back then it was like $25,000 a year. And now I hear crazy things of like, it's up to like $100,000 a year. And the reality is you're still getting out making pennies. You know, I came out Tell of school. Me, what does that mean? And I want people to know that, pe- that not all chefs are celebrity chefs. What's yeah, I mean, people are still income? people are still getting paid eleven dollars an hour to work in restaurants in this day and age. I came out of culinary school with um, student loan debt. My repayment was four hundred and four dollars a month. That was in nineteen ninety eight when I graduated, wow. and I was making eleven dollars an hour out of school, which was a lot at the time. Like that was the high end. So I mean, that's like a, a car payment or rent payment. So you know, when you're looking at spending over a hundred thousand dollars, which now is like two to three hundred thousand dollars to come out and still not necessarily have that much of a leg up uh, in the industry it's tough and then you have to make some choices you know i got into contract food which is working for companies like aramark sodexo things like that because at least they pay benefits and pay higher if you want to come out and work at a really great restaurant you're probably going to start lower so i made some decisions that impacted my career path because I needed the money. You know, that's really hard when you come out and you can't pay your bills. So how long does one go through culinary school? Because, you know, you're talking about at that time, $25,000 a year. That's a lot of money in the 90s for sure. And then you get out after how many years and what's kind of like the degree 
that makes you chef? Yeah, so I did four years. Johnson & Wales was the first school to offer a four-year bachelor's in culinary arts. When I entered as a freshman, that year they graduated the first class of seniors that had a bachelor's in culinary. Prior to that, you got an associate's degree, a B, uh, an AS in culinary. And then if you wanted a bachelor's, the, the last two years were like food service management. Uh, then they decided they wanted to focus on also having a four-year culinary where you got into more in-depth culinary classes, but also restaurant management stuff. So I've taken everything from uh, business ethics to leadership to menu costing and all classes like that. So I came out with a four-year BS in culinary arts. This is interesting because when people, I've taken people on tours to culinary schools, for example, at the CIA, and, and people kind of look at this culinary students with a real respect and an awe. The only other time that I'd seen that was when people came to visit me at the seminary. They would look at the seminarians and they would be so fascinated by this unique world. But the difference between those two institutions is that you're getting education, but how much care does the school provide for like your, your emotional temperament, your, your human formation, your, your psychological, because, because we just know that one of the hardest industries to get into is the culinary industry. And it seems like while they're learning the craft, maybe the person needs to learn about themselves. What has culinary school provided for that kind of self-awareness and knowledge? I don't know that they provided enough at the time. I mean, I think right now, especially, it feels like just the last two years, year and a half, we've been going through kind of a revolution where we're talking about mental health and, you know, the rights of food service workers. But I still think we're in the infancy of that. It, it the culinary schools and the way it started to grow was this brigade system where it was like your executive chef was almost like a military instructor and everything was yes, chef, no chef, you know, and I'm sure you've heard the stories of chefs throwing pots and pans and, and whatever. I've kind of been and, through that. <laughs> and, and there, and there weren't a lot, there wasn't a lot of room for independent thought in a kitchen. Like if a chef told you to do something, there was no questioning that. And now you're starting to see a little fluidity. And I think that is coming with a, a younger generation of cooks who want a better work-life balance. They realize that people should have a voice, but in culinary school 20 years ago, we weren't taught that. I mean, the chef, the executive chef was where the buck stopped. And I've done a lot of things in kitchens and restaurants um, that I don't think I should have done or should have had to put up with. And, you know, you tell yourself it builds character, right? But at some point you have to stop um, the cycle. We've talked about a lot of this, like, the way parenting, you know, kind of like the, well, my dad used to beat me, so I'm going to beat my kid. And at some point we said like, well, you know, that's not really the right way to do things. Well, how about a kitchen? Like just because your chef yelled at you and threw things at you, like doesn't mean that how it should have been and how we need to continue. So how do we push forward? So I actually don't know what's going on in culinary schools and how much they're discussing it. But I know just in, you know, what you see in here in the food media in the past two years with everything from me too, to just like working environments and mental health. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of chefs are talking about substance abuse in kitchens. So I feel like we're just really starting to get into that. You are scratching the surface. And so just from your experience, you made a decision personally to not go on the line and work in a restaurant, but instead you chose a more of a, a corporate chef job. Just tell me the different things that people will do with the degree, a culinary degree. Yeah. I mean, now there's so many options. I mean, when you came out of culinary school, 
they really talked about like working in a restaurant or working in a hotel or at a resort. Um, obviously, contract food is growing, and that's where I spent most of my career. So when you look at these companies, I worked for Sodexo for 10 years. Uh, I worked at a place where the Compass Group was running the food. And when you look at institutions like healthcare, hospitals, retirement communities, business dining, schools, those are all run by contract food service companies because you know the owner of a hotel doesn't have the knowledge to run the kitchen. And it's easier to just hire a company that specializes in that. And I think that's a great place to start if you really have a passion for food and maybe want to have a little more structure to it, you know, because you're, first of all, you're usually getting better pay than working in an independent restaurant. You definitely get benefits. I mean, when I left my job at Sodexo, I was getting four weeks paid vacation. I had a 401k, you know, I had to work every other weekend. So it was a much better work-life balance for me. But now, I mean, there's everything you can start a food truck, you can be a personal chef, you know, there's so many. And this is kind of the reason why you kind of created a community of people, you know, chefs without restaurants. Uh, How are you looked at by other chefs? I want to kind of hear, there is a culture of competitiveness like you can't believe. It's, It's the same way even in the priesthood. But what's been your experience of trying to give a voice to chefs who don't have a restaurant? Yeah, I think it's been response. There's been great response, even by restaurant chefs. And we've even had some restaurant chefs on our podcast. But just the idea for me is I wanted to give some infrastructure because many of the chefs without restaurants don't have a community. Like if you're an executive chef in a restaurant, you have a general manager, you have a staff, you have people around you. If you work and contract food, you have many of those same things. What I found is I was working a job where I had, you know, multiple bosses, probably like seven people and an HR department, but I had 125 employees. And then literally overnight, when I started my business, I had nothing, no support system, no help, no one to bounce ideas off of. I wasn't accountable to anyone but myself. And I just thought, wow, I know there's tons of people out there like me. So can't we build our own network where we can lean on each other, ask uh, questions if we have them, help share gigs and build this network where we had our own kind of support system, but then also raise awareness to all these really interesting career paths out there. So people maybe going into the culinary industry don't feel like they have to get locked into this. I'm going to be a line cook or an executive chef at a restaurant or a hotel and realize you can be a food stylist. You can be a food writer. You can be a personal chef, like, and everyone being very open and honest about what they're doing. I mean, I, I want to get into a no BS conversation where people can talk about how much they charge their clients or how much they're paying their employees or what their big challenges are and just putting it out there for the whole world to hear so that we can get better and kind of create our own set of best practices. And it's really tough because a lot of people don't understand the food world. I think, for example, in the recent pandemic and the quarantine and the closure of restaurants, people are paying a little bit more attention to the good things that the hospitality industry does for communities. So that's been a positive thing. But in your state, besides having a better kind of work-life balance, there are also challenges to your kind of professional cooking. What would some of those challenges be and how do you deal with them? I mean, first and foremost, finding customers, right? So like, uh, I'm a one-man show. So I'm also having to learn things like marketing. And if I, you know, you can obviously pay for things, but a lot of us start out and we're kind of bootstrapping it. So it's like, I don't know anything about web design. So figuring that out. And then how do I market? How do I find customers? I mean, I don't have a set paycheck coming in. So right now I just, I look and next week is light on customers. What do I do? Cause I need some money. 
So figuring out things like that, I think customer acquisition is one of the hardest things. How do you keep people coming in? And even if this week is your best week ever, next week you could be dead. And you know, you need to really work on your finances and budgeting and things Which like that. Which a lot think, of chefs don't like to do because no. they're more into the creative, the artistic side of things. And so what you've got to do is use both sides of your brain, so to speak. And besides that, uh, how about some of the, I don't want to say criticism or the critique, but maybe some of the, the challenges or the stereotypical prejudices that other chefs have towards non-restaurant working chefs. Do you find that tension? A hundred percent. You're not a real chef. You know, it's kind of like the expression, like those who I've been can't told I'm teach, not a real priest either. Right? I'm not like, a real chef. They, they always say those who can't teach. So it's kind of like, oh, you guys can't cut it in a restaurant doing 300 covers tonight. So you'd rather go cook for like two people. Um, you know, and-, and some of me starting this organization was kind of because I had a chip on my shoulder. Like when you look in the food world of all the famous, well-known chefs, they're running, you know, Michelin star restaurants and James Beard award-winning restaurants. And there's a lot of really cool people doing cool things out there. But I found that, um, especially when I was working in contract food, my most recent job was a retirement community. And you'd meet someone and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a chef. And they get really excited and they say, oh, awesome, where? And I say, I'm at Carol Lutheran Village, a retirement community. And then there's this like, oh. And you're kind of like, no, 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 no. Like we do awesome stuff. Like I swear to God, our food is better than any restaurant in the city. We, and it's like, you already lost them. Like they tuned out because their mind, they've gone to like the 1980s place where their Nana lived and the food was just disgusting. It, it's, they don't realize the food smelled I, like the air. Know, I have like a, a $2 million food budget and I'm bringing in better quality products than the wow. restaurant in town because I can. And we made food a priority. I mean, obviously it's not like that at every place because then everyone comes back and say, oh, you work for Sodexo? Like I had them at my school and they weren't that good. Oh yeah. But, but there's so much that goes into that because I always say it's like the budget. Like maybe the CEO of your school only wanted to give Sodexo $2 a plate for food, but this retirement community has $5 a plate. Like there's so much that goes into it, but people just want to hear that you work at this like really fancy Michelin starred restaurant in DC. And if you're not doing that, they've kind of dismissed you. So this was like a way for us to just kind of say like, no, look at all these really cool people doing really awesome things. They just don't work in restaurants. I, I love this idea. So it has grown. Tell me a little bit about the community and, and what you're doing to build connection. Yeah, we have, I mean, thousands of, I say members across multiple social media platforms. There's no official membership. Anyone can be a part as long as you're not a jerk. You respect everyone and you know you want to work together but the idea the first thing that i really wanted to do was like gig sharing because what i found was you know we talk about how hard it is to get customers so you know i have a job this wednesday night and if someone were to contact me and say i want to hire you well i'm booked but i want to do something with that lead because you know i have other friends who are personal chefs looking for work so how can we create a system where i can refer those customers to that chef and pair them up and then keep it free. Like I think money is a huge barrier for so many of these things. There's great organizations like the Personal Chefs Association and the American Culinary Federation, but they're all like two to $400 a year. Yep. And a lot of people when they're starting out don't have that money. So from the start, I wanted to create a free organization where I felt like if you had enough members, you could crowdsource all this stuff. So instead of having to use a, a website like Thumbtack where they charge you like 30 to $100 for a lead like that, it's free you know, it'll all come back to me. Like I will send that job to someone and hopefully when they get a lead that they can't do, they'll send one back to me. And I don't need to monetize that and say, well, for $20, I'll give you this lead on a job or for 10%, I'll give you a lead on this job. So the gig sharing was the, the first thing, but then just 
sharing what we're doing via social media. So our Instagram page, sharing the work of like really cool chefs. And obviously with everything going on right now with, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, I've been focusing a lot on black chefs in the community to make sure that people are seeing their work because I have a platform and that's something that was important to me. Um, but that's not something that we're just jumping on now. I mean, we've done sure. 30 ish podcasts and of those already 10 out of 30 are African Americans. So, you know, it's not like we're just doing it now as something to jump on with popularity, but giving them maybe more of a voice, amplifying you know, that, that, that if we can. That's a great point. I mean, like I've interviewed several chefs and the majority of them were actually at black. And so I, I'm glad to hear that. Well, I think, I think one of the things you're seeing a lot of people of color and other backgrounds in the personal chef space because they don't have an easy road in the professional space. And, you know, that's something we've kind of talked about when you look at, you know, you're a young black guy and you work in a kitchen, what's the chance that you're going to get promoted up to the ranks to be the executive chef? For sure. And it's probably easier to just say, I'm going to do my own thing and be a personal chef because there's no gatekeepers, Correct. you know, and they can go off and start their own business without having to spend an extra 10 years in the industry, hoping that someone appreciates them and moves up. So I'm seeing a lot of people in my community who aren't white men. And I think that just because there's less barriers to them starting their own business. I love it. Now, you mentioned one of the requirements of being part of, you know, chefs without restaurants is not being a jerk. Is that a common thing in the uh, uh, culinary world? And, and tell me, where do you think it comes from? The answer is yes. There's a lot of attitude. We get it. I mean, we've seen it on TV. Where does this come from, man? I mean, what's well, going on? I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's just the culinary industry. I mean, if you go on Facebook or any social media, like the arguing is just crazy. And I think there's a way to have a differing opinion and not be disrespectful. I mean, I allow, I want all voices heard to some degree, as long as it's a respectful conversation. So just, you know, we'll, we'll share an article about some chef doing something and someone else might come on and kind of take shots at that chef or whatever. And I'll kind of give them the reminder of like, okay, you might not agree with them or what they're doing, but but you there know, like is a there is a unique, you know, again, ratatouille, kind of the arrogant chef and they're in charge. Where, where do you think it comes? I'm getting a little moralistic here because I am a priest, but it, it's only good for, I think, other culinarians to understand this is not a helpful attitude in the kitchen at all. But where do you think it comes from? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of ego. It's, I don't know if it, this industry draws people to that or because it's a creative industry. I mean, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing, there whether you you're a film director or whatever, you know, you have a vision and it's really hard to have someone else critique your vision. And I think that's it. You know, you make a dish as a chef in a restaurant and you put it up for family meal and have everyone try it. And it's really hard when a line cook who's been there for a month says, you know, I think it needs more salt, you know, and it's hard to be a chef who's been cooking for 40 years to, talk to this you know oh, so true 20 something year old cook and say like no no like that's just your palate it's actually good um, i was in a friendly cooking competition and uh and i made this just kind of like this beautiful thing with mystery ingredients and and people had no idea what it was and then this guy makes a chicken salad and he wins i'm like oh come on you know and so i can even feel that as well but let me just i kind of want to get your background where has been the coolest place you worked in and besides Burger King, what's the most challenging place you've worked in? Ooh. I had a lot of fun working in Minneapolis when I was uh, in a hotel. So that was actually when I was in school. It was an internship. We had to go work somewhere that wasn't at school. And 
I didn't have money for lodging and I didn't have a vehicle. So I put the filters on of like who has on-site housing and they put me up in the Regal Minneapolis hotel, which is right downtown. And I got to live in the penthouse. So I'm 22 years old living in the penthouse of a hotel because it was under renovation, but it was still nice. And I had one roommate. So the two of us had three rooms, two bathrooms, living room, full kitchen. Wow. Um, Yeah. And we lived downtown and because we were there and, didn't have a lot to do. The GM of the hotel every night, if we weren't working, would give us uh, tickets to any events that they hadn't sold out. So, you know, they had like season tickets to the Timberwolves. Uh, It was Kevin Garnett's rookie year there. And it'd be like, oh, you're off tonight. Well, I have floor seats to the Timberwolves. You guys want to go? And we just like, give us tickets. Um, But it was really cool working in a hotel because they, the chefs there were the first and some of the only ones who ever really gave me creative control somewhat. I remember my first day I walked in there and said, okay, chef, you know, I'm here. What do you want me to do? And he said, build a fruit and cheese platter for a wedding. It's, you know, 200 people. I said, how do you do it? And he said, there's mirrors in the hallway and there's fruit and cheese in the walk-in. You're a chef, figure it out. And that wasn't to dismiss me, but it was just kind of like to test my skills. And I think it would have been very easy to micromanage me and say, here's this new kid. Like we got to keep an eye on him. This is a big event, but that they gave me that room to kind of do that. I think I did really well but I didn't do it the way that they normally do it. And then they came after the fact and just helped me a little bit. And now that's how I do mine. Just, I mean, I really liked the way they did it. They taught me, but they gave me room to kind of go at it. And my trace still went out, Uh, but then going forward, they just said, okay, we like this, but this is kind of how we do it. That's a great management practice. Yeah. But you don't, you don't see that that often. And that really struck me as like one of the ways that I wanted to run my kitchens was, you know, not this overpowering stand over everyone and micromanage every detail. Like you have to allow some margin of not error, but just like individuality. Where's where's been your most challenging place that you've worked in? Um, Besides Burger King. Yeah. I worked in a retirement community. It was a Jewish run kosher. So that's like a whole nother thing. Um, Yeah, that was a tough place. It was, it was tough for just a number of reasons. There was a lot of pressures there. There was a lot of budget constraints. Um, We went through 27 members of the management team in less than a year. Um, So it was just one of those places where we had kind of like the overlord bosses kind of uh, controlling us all the time. And it was just like a pressure cooker of stress. And we turned through a lot of managers. It was a, a takeover. So in our industry, what that means is like there was another company who ran the account and then they lost it. And then we came over and literally it was a Sunday night at like eight o'clock. They dropped keys in our hands and said, have fun boys. And the next day we had to be open for service with like not having done any prep and done anything. And now, uh, there is no doubt that chefs work a lot of hours and they're usually working when everyone else is celebrating. How do you kind of manage being able to celebrate, because you're a family man too, right? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely. Married, yep, got, married. I've got uh, twins who will be eight this summer. And so how do you manage the, the scheduling of when you're working, but everyone else is celebrating? How do you do it? You kind of pick which days are important to you that are off limits. So having my own business now, I have the flexibility of that. So my wife's birthday is also Valentine's Day. So that's a day that's kind of non-negotiable. And I just block it off on my calendar. A lot of people want to hire me for Valentine's Day. I say, you know, I can do the weekend before, the weekend after, days around. I don't work that day. Uh, Then we'll look at things like Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'd like to be with my family, but if someone hires me for a job, maybe I'll do that and we'll celebrate the next day. So we just kind of take it on day by day and how business has been and if there's a great opportunity. And your wife and your kids are understanding to it because you do require to have 
a community to support you with all that because submit a lot of marriages and in, in, from culinarians, they, they don't last because of these real challenging constraints. Now there's a couple more questions. I want to ask about the culture of the, the culinary world, the hospitality world. I, I noticed you have a spoon tattoo on your left arm, right? So, uh, and I have a fork on the right. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's classy. Uh, but I just noticed that the culinary world today is tatted and uh, it, very pierced. In the past, you had to be incredibly clean cut. You just had to be very, very quaffed, so to speak. What do you think changed that we now have the professional, elegant, white coat chef to the quote unquote badass tatted chefs? I think the spirit was always there and those guys probably covered it up pretty well under their long sleeve coats. But again, I think it goes to the artistic freedom and, and so forth. I'm actually in a book called Knives and Ink about chefs with tattoos. <laughs> um, it's a really cool book. There's an artist and what she does is she actually draws you with your tattoo. So they had an open call on the internet for submissions and wanted you to take a photo of yourself with your uh, culinary tattoos. And then she draws them in her style. Her name's Wendy McNaughton and she's a really well-known artist and is illustrated from everything from like the New York times articles to so mm. forth. But she put out a book called pen and ink about uh, the same thing. And it was related to, I think like authors and musicians and something. And then they wanted to do one for culinary. And so I actually have the largest, it's a four page spread in this book and it's a drawing of me with my tattoo and then a recipe and then a drawing of uh, other parts of my recipe. So ingredients in there. Wow. So, like one, yeah. it reminds me of one of the Voltaggio brothers, his, na his restaurant in, in California is Inc. Because yes. of all the tattoos. It's interesting. I've got just um, one more question for you and then we're going to kind of close. But where can people find you? Where can they learn more about the community and of course your services? Everywhere on the internet. So my personal business is Perfect Little Bites and my organization organization is Chefs Without Restaurants. And if you look for them, you'll find them everywhere. I mean, my website is perfectlittlebites.com, uh, chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org are mine. And then on all social media. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I have them for both my business and the organization and the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. There you go. And final question, simply, I know this is almost strange talking to a priest about the food world. It's a little strange, isn't it? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> what do you think I can do as a priest? to help you? Oh, I think, um, you know, be, be supportive of our industry and the challenges that people have, because I think now we're finally getting to a point where people are feeling comfortable, like opening up about some things, you know, now we're starting to talk about mental health and some of these issues that are affecting the work. I think personal life bleeding into the work life is something that's happening all the time. And I would just say, you know, be ready to support those people because we're telling people stand up for what you believe in, stand up for what's right. If you need help, get help. And I think making sure that people know where those resources are to kind of help them out because I think we're finally able to say, yeah, I have anxiety and um, I need to talk to someone. So being there to listen and, and to guide people. Being there to listen and to guide people. My special guest, Chef Chris Spear from Perfect Little Bites and, of course, Chefs Without Restaurants. Do check him out. And when we come back, I'm going to give you my carryout order. What did I learn from this pretty exciting conversation? Chef, thank you very much for being part of it. Thanks so much for having me on the show. 
and we'll be back in just a moment. To the carryout order. It was a great privilege to talk to Chef Chris Spears about his work. And this is what I kind of learned. Uh, there is a real need to provide formation for people in the hospitality industry, whether you're going to be a cook or whether you're going to be, uh, you know, uh, back of the house or front of the house serving. We need to be more self-aware of who we are and, and what our actual role is in the hospitality industry, because while you can learn a lot of cooking techniques in the culinary school, you kind of need to learn how to be a good person. You could be a good cook, but you could also be a jerk. But this is true for just about every industry that we have. Formation is key, and I think culinary schools need to kind of tap into what we learned in the seminary was formation doesn't make me better. It just makes me more aware of how I have a craft and how that needs to be presented because that's kind of what chefs do. I always consider chefs kind of like our secular cousins. What we do in the church is what a lot of chefs do in the midst of the world. And it was great to talk to Chef Spears about like all of the different ways you can be a chef even if you are not in a restaurant. So it was kind of cool to hear how, you know, um, his experiences – and even though there's been challenges, he is able to make not only a successful career of his craft, he's able to create an environment where he can be a, a, a cool chef, even if he's not on TV like all these other celebrity chefs that are out there. And, uh, and, and then to also know that there is a system, that there's a system in the culinary world, and it kind of is similar to every other industry, including the church, where there's a hierarchy, there's a pecking order, and there are even some attitudes that kind of advance you or don't advance you. Uh, it was just great to hear how he was able to kind of maneuver through all of that. And what we need to do is learn how to do it ourselves, because there's a lot of systems that will kind of oppress people. Uh, and we need to be able to maneuver through all of these challenges in order for you to not just be successful, but to be faithful to who you are. And the final thing that I got was when I asked him, you know, how can I help you? How can I be of support to you? He just simply said, just be supportive. You know, like, especially now in this crazy time that we're living in, we have to be willing to listen to each other, uh, to not be so quick to kind of judge the the culinary world because it's a very secular environment, very very little spirit of 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 God in Christianity, or at least obviously so. And so, what I need to do is, if any of them come to me, which is kind of the work that we do with the Table Foundation, and I kind of mentioned it briefly, but the Table Foundation supports two groups of people the hospitality industry, as well as returning citizens, ex-convicts. And so we want to try to give the culinary hospitality industry support spiritually, just kind of encouragement. We're really trying to revamp our site to, to even point to resources for people so that they can get the help that they need. Then, of course, the returning citizens, because they might not make it in the culinary traditional world, but they can certainly be successful if they are called to the hospitality industry after they leave pre, uh, prison system. In fact, I'm so grateful that one of the people that I worked with at the Table Foundation and Plating Grace out of the out of the prison system, I worked with them for three years, in a sense graduated from our program and now is the executive chef of a very important industry uh, helping the homeless. 
and the poor in Baltimore City. He's the culinary director for that, so it's certainly possible. We just have to be willing to support that. So speaking of support, if you enjoyed this conversation and want to be a part of it all, simply join the Academy, be a member that's a, a tiered paying member. That little donation each month helps us to continue the work that we do. Plus you receive um, exclusive content and special perks. And so I want to thank you all for listening and especially to my, to my special guest, Chef Chris Spears. And between now and the next time we shoot the shiitake, stay hungry. <laughs>